the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. Some translations say, test me. He says, go ahead, put me to the test. He even, even invites us, put me to the test. He says, I will open up the floodgates of heaven. I will take care of you. If you honor me, I will always make sure that you're taken care of. So much of our spending has to do with, or, or hoarding or saving has to do with the feeling like, if I don't keep this, then I, I'm, I'm going to be destitute in the future. God will never let his children beg for bread. And we need to always honor him and God will take care of us. It's in the heart of everyone to be selfish and greedy. That's sometimes the problem why people can't be generous with God or others. Because they've spent their money on themselves and can't afford to be generous. Some people think that tithing is an Old Testament law. But as you'll learn in today's message, tithing is talked about throughout the entire Bible. Pastor Gary will explain that tithing is not a legal mandate. It's a loving principle. Tithing is between you and the Lord. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Malachi as he continues his message, ministry, marriage, and money. God hates divorce because marriage was intended by God to be a display of God's love and grace and faithfulness toward us. So marriage is to express God's love, His grace, and His faithfulness towards us. And when we come into a marital union, ideally, we are supposed to be mirroring that to our spouse. We are to be showing the same love and grace and faithfulness that God has shown us to our husband or to our wife. It is to be a parallel of the kind of love and grace and faithfulness God has for us that in a marital union we show for our spouse. Now, throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, God compares his relationship, Old Testament to Israel, New Testament Christ to the church, as like unto a marriage. In fact, there's marital language used throughout Old Testament and New. I'll give you a few examples. This is Isaiah 54 verse 5. God says, for your maker is your husband, the Lord Almighty is his name. In Isaiah 62, 5, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. And by the way, when the Jewish people forsook the Lord and followed after idols, God said, in effect, using same, the same marital language, you were committing adultery. 
because you have left me. Instead of loving me, you've loved other gods. You've left me for another lover. And so in Jeremiah 3.14, God says, return faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. He calls them back out of their adultery. He says, come back to me. I love you. I'm your husband. In a similar way, in the New Testament, Paul would write in Ephesians 5, 31 to 32, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He's quoting out of Genesis chapter 2. And then he adds, this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. See, in the New Testament, Christ presents as the groom, and we are the bride, and he's coming again for us to take us home to be with him forever. In fact, when, his, when he comes again, his second coming, in Revelation 19, verse 7, it says, Let us rejoice and be glad, and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and the bride, us, we have made ourselves ready. So there's this marital language, because God is communicating his love, grace, and faithfulness to us, and he wants us to demonstrate that in a marriage. And therefore, when we likewise demonstrate love, grace, and faithfulness to our spouse, we are representing God. But to the contrary, when we break faith with a spouse, without biblical grounds, we are misrepresenting God's character and distorting the image of God's love, grace, and faithfulness. And unfortunately, Because we live in such a casual, no-fault divorce system now these days in our country, divorce has been made easy, accessible, and appealing to people who no longer want to be committed. And often their answer simply is, not always, I'm not trying to oversimplify, but often the answer simply is, I'm just not happy. Now let me tell you something as Christians, why that is unacceptable as an answer in marriage. Because the ultimate goal in marriage is not personal happiness. It is personal holiness. If you don't get that, you will never be happy in your marriage. Because if you think that happiness is what leads, it doesn't. Holiness is what leads. Happiness will follow holiness, but holiness will never follow happiness. If you are first right with God, and you do all that is necessary for you to be right with God, irrespective of what your spouse might do, if your goal is personal holiness before God, then you will do what is right in that marriage, even if your spouse necessarily may not. Because to be God-honoring means we obey God, we represent God properly in the marriage, we stay committed as God stays committed to us, and we keep our oath even when it hurts, Psalm 15, verse 4. Because that's the way God is with us. Aren't you glad that God does not treat us the way sometimes we treat each other in a marriage? He stays committed. He loves us with an everlasting love. He woos us back when we stray. He is loving and gracious and faithful to us. But I hear all the time, well, you don't understand, Pastor Gary, we have irreconcilable differences. Can I just tell you, every marriage has irreconcilable differences. What does that mean? Every single marriage has irreconcilable differences. When Terry and I got married, let me tell you something. After the goo-goo-ga-ga phase, like, oh, goo-goo-ga-ga, oh, let me feed you. You feed me. Oh, We suddenly realized how different we were. We married our complete opposites. How many of you, go ahead, it's liberating. Just raise your hand. How many of you married your complete opposite? Praise God. Now, let me tell you why that's a good thing. At first, you're like, I can't believe. Why do you do that? 
Why do you do that? Why do you do that? Why do you think like that? Why do you want to do that? Why do you want... At first, when you realize that you guys are different, it becomes competitive, doesn't it? It becomes competitive. And it becomes judgmental. I can't believe. Why do you, why do you put the toilet paper over instead of under? Why do you do that? Who taught you that? Why do you just squeeze the toothpaste like that? Roll it up from the bottom. All those little quirky differences that suddenly get exposed and you're thinking, I, I, I feel like I have married the spawn of Satan. And you, don't, and, you don't even, and you don't even know what in the world just happened from the Goo Goo Gaga stage to the, please, there's a demon in, in the house somewhere. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. Terry and I, complete opposites. Complete opposites. And this is the beauty of marriage. You know, the saying that opposites attract is true. In friendship, it's a different saying. It's birds of a feather flock together. Because in friendship, when you just want a buddy or, or a girlfriend, you know, um, you, it's often around common interests, common goals, common uh, hobbies, those kind of, those birds of a feather flock together. But in a marriage, it's often opposites attract because God knows that your weaknesses are her strengths. And her strengths are your weaknesses. And therefore, God brings people who are completely different together to complement one another. Now, notice I didn't say to complete one another. I'm complete in Christ. Terry does not make me complete. Terry is complete in Christ. I do not make her complete. This should be liberating to those of you who are single. Because you think, unless I get married, I won't, I won't be complete. You are complete in Christ. Now, a spouse can complement us. Again, weaknesses and strengths become shared. The strengths compensate for each other's weaknesses, and God brings two very different people together to complement. But you can often see those differences, and this has been a struggle for Terry and me for many, many years, where we look at our differences and, and we think competitively instead of complementary. And so they can become sources of irritation and argument until God gets you to the place where you realize you need to not only tolerate your differences, but celebrate your differences because God has brought that person into your life to bring a complementary relationship, you see, then you'll always be fighting and nitpicking over the things that are different. The Bible says in Ephesians 4 verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Listen again, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Ephesians 4 3. God would not tell us to make every effort at keeping unity if unity came easily. Unity does not come easily. And so God tells us work at unity. Don't look at the differences and, and, and make them disagreements. Look at the differences as ways that complement each other in the relationship. And so God instituted marriage as a wonderful thing to bring a complementary union between a man and a woman. But there are circumstances where sometimes marriages don't work out. And the Bible gives two very narrow, I'm just going to tell you right up front, that there's not, a, there's not a long list here. There are two narrow circumstances under which divorce is permissible. Now, listen to my language, permissible. God never commands divorce, never once in the Bible. He never commands it and never encourages it. But he says there are a couple of reasons why it might be permissible. And for you note takers, here's the first one. When is a divorce permissible? Number one, because of marital unfaithfulness, that is sexual immorality. 
In Matthew 5, 31 and 32, Jesus said this, Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. So the word used here for sexual immorality is pornea. It is a broad term that that covers various forms of illicit sexual behavior. It is the breaking of the covenant to be unfaithful in a marriage by sexual immorality. And it is a grounds, it is permissible. Again, not encouraged, not commanded, but it is a grounds for divorce if there cannot be reconciliation after the breaking of faith with sexual immorality. Number two, the only other reason the Bible gives is in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and that is desertion by an unbelieving spouse. 1 Corinthians seven thirteen to 15, it says, And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? In other words, if there happens to be, and this is not ideal, a believer marrying an unbeliever, but if that's the case, maybe two unbelievers got married. One person became a Christian in the course of the marriage. What now? Now there's friction, there's some difficulties, there's some differences. If the unbelieving spouse wants to leave, you're free. Again, it's not like you necessarily encourage that. You still, still should fight for the marriage, work on the marriage, do whatever you can to save the marriage. But if the unbelieving spouse wants to leave, let him leave or let her leave, you are free. Now, there are a variety of different circles. What about this? What about this? What about this? And I'm not going to be able to cover that. But, you know, these are the two narrow circumstances where God says divorce is permissible. If you are in a situation where you don't have one of these two grounds, but yet it is completely miserable or maybe even dangerous, you know, a woman should never be in a home where it's abusive. Or maybe there's issues like alcoholism or, or, or pornography or, or stuff that is going on. Separation may certainly be a step that you need to take for your safety or in order to work on the marriage so that hopefully, ultimately, it can be reconciled. Separation is spoken of in the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 10 to 11. It says, now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. In other words, there might be times where separation is necessary, but separation should always be for the, biblically speaking, should always be with the goal in mind of reconciliation. In our culture today, separation typically is in mind as a step towards divorce. Not biblically speaking, it shouldn't be. And people start, well, I'll separate, and then I, and then I can start dating around, I can start, that's nonsense. That is, never, that is not in the Bible. If you're separated and still think that gives you liberty to start dating, that is not biblical. Uh, you need to still be committed to the marriage, and you need to try to do what you can to reconcile but one of these two grounds may be reason for divorce. It's, it's a very, very difficult topic. I, I'm probably doing a disservice to the topic by just making it one of the points, but yet I just wanted to lay out for you, here's what God says. Marriage is sacred. 
Divorce is never encouraged, but permissible under these two circumstances. And if you are in a difficult marriage right now, it might require separation, but the goal should be towards reconciliation and to pray and trust God. If your marriage is not worked out, don't be walking in shame. Some of you would say to me, I didn't even know some of these things, and I got divorced, so I didn't even know this, um, or I wasn't even a believer. You know, first of all, if you weren't even a believer, there's a lot of stuff we've done in our life that is under the blood. So, so you know, don't, don't walk around feeling the shame of that. And all I can say to you is, now that you know what you know, wherever you are in a circumstance in life, whether you're married, whether you're divorced, whether you're married and on the brink of divorce, whether you're single, just know what God says about the sacredness of marriage. And live it out to the best of your ability and trust God. The last point, it's the issue of money. And some of you are like, oh, I'm glad he only has two minutes to go through this. Um, <laughs> if you look quickly at chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, God says to them, will a man rob God? Chapter 3, verse 8, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and try me now in this. Some of your translations say, test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be enough room to receive it. Now, before I explain some of these terms, I just want to say this right up front. I am not now, nor have I ever, if you've ever been here at Cornerstone very long, you know, not now, nor ever have I begged for your money or asked for your money. Okay, God can provide for his church and he has graciously provided for our church over the years and we've never had to beg for money. We've never said give, give, give. And the only reason I point that out is because somebody mentioned to me that somebody on Yelp wrote a review like all they ever do is ask for money. I'm like, have you ever been to our church? Like we receive an offering as worship unto the Lord, but we never ask you give, 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 give more. We're running short on our budget and so you need to dig deeper and give more. Never done that. And so God is our provider. So I just want to lay out for you what he says here, and you can pray about it and do as you wish. That becomes between you and the Lord. First, some terms here, tithe. The word tithe there in verse 8 means tenth. Ten cents of every dollar is to go to the Lord. That is his idea for us because it is a way that honors him with everything that we have, which has come from his hand. Everything that we have, we are not owners of it. We are just managers of it because all of it has come from his hand. If you have a biblical worldview of resources and income and earnings, it's that. Everything that I have, everything I've accumulated, everything I've accomplished is from the hand of God. He's either given it to me or given me the abilities to produce an income. It's all from him and he gets all the glory for it. And what he says is now, I want a tenth of it back. And he gives us the privilege of living off a 90% of it. Because it's all from him anyway. Tithes and offerings is the other word used here. Now, offerings are over and above tithe. That's discretionary generosity. Okay? But here's the deal. If you believe that you are to manage your money in such a way that God has given you, that you're going to give a tenth to God, now you're having to live off of 90% of your income. And if you believe that offerings should be generosity above that, either, either to the church or to causes or, or charitable organizations or to people that need it or whatever it might be, and let's say just round number, that's also a tenth. Now you got to live off of 80% of your income. And good stewards really and, and financial advisors say you ought to be saving at least 10% of your income in savings 
Now you're having to live off of 70% of your income, and that's hard. It's manageable, it's doable, but you're going to have to make some tough choices. The problem is a lot of people can't be generous with God or others because they are a slave to debt. Most Americans live beyond their means. Most Americans are spending more than they are earning, which means they are accumulating high credit card debt. They're way over their heads. They're deep over their head in water, and they can't be generous if they want to. If you really want to honor God in terms of generosity, the tithe, the offering, and being a blessing to him and to others, it begins with reigning in your spending getting into a budget where gets, you get under control and you're, you don't have credit card debt and other high uh, debt load that, that cripples you. But the only way we're going to be able to be open-handed instead of tight-fisted is when we are good stewards and managers of everything that God has given us. And we have to learn to tighten our belt and to honor God because He's given us everything. And God says here in this verse, in verse 10, He says, try me now in this, or some translations say, test me. He says, go ahead, put me to the test. He even even invites us, put me to the test. He says, I will open up the floodgates of heaven. I will take care of you. If you honor me, I will always make sure that you're taken care of. So much of our spending has to do with, or or hoarding or saving has to do with the feeling like, if I don't keep this, then I'm going to be destitute in the future. God will never let his children beg for bread. And we need to always honor him and God will take care of us. There are two quick reasons why, in principle, we should practice the tithe and offering. Number one, because it is an expression of worship to the Lord. It's a regular reminder that God has given us everything. He is the source of everything. He is the owner of all that we earn and we possess. And giving him at least that tenth is a constant reminder that God is the source of all that I have. Number two... It's for the purpose of conditioning the heart against greed and selfishness. It is in the heart of every single one of us to be greedy, to be selfish, to be covetous. By practicing, and at first it might be a discipline before it becomes a natural way of life, by practicing the tithe, giving a tenth unto the Lord of our income, of our resources to the Lord, through the storehouse, by the way, that's his house, that's his temple, the local church. You can give whatever you want in addition to that, beyond and above to others and whatever. But if we start with that minimum, it's a constant reminder to us that pushes against the natural tendency to be greedy and selfish until it becomes more of a natural way of life. There's a warning in the Bible in 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money, not money itself, the love of it is a root of all kinds of evil, and some eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 8, 7, that just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. Listen, the grace of giving. The tithe is not a legal mandate. It is simply a loving principle. And people will say to me, wait a minute, tithing is just Old Testament stuff. No, it's not. In Genesis chapter 14, Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, Melchizedek, meaning the king of righteousness. I think it was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Abraham in Genesis 14 tithed to Melchizedek before the law was even given. Jacob also tithed to God in Genesis before the law was given. Jesus in Matthew chapter 23 rebukes the Pharisees because they were good about tithing, but they neglected the weightier matters of the law like justice, mercy, and faithfulness. He said you should practice the latter without neglecting the former. 
Jesus actually said tithing is a good thing, but just don't look at it as this legal mandate. Practice justice, mercy, and faithfulness too. And so you do with it what you want, but I'm just here to say that when God speaks to the people in Malachi's day, he's speaking to us as well about ministry, marriage, money. How are we doing in our own lives? You've been listening to Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Pastor Gary has been teaching through the last several books of the Old Testament, also known as the Minor Prophets. These short books are powerful and reveal so much about your Creator and His love for the world. If you have any questions or would like to share a prayer request with us, please contact us. You can reach us by calling 703-771-1500. Again, that number is 703-771-1500. You can also listen to more teachings in this series by visiting our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc, or just download our mobile app. That way you'll have biblical messages available to listen to whenever you want, wherever you are. Pastor Gary also has a companion resource available for this Minor Prophets series. You'll find it under the Teachings tab at cornerstoneconnection.cc. We'd love to meet you, too. You're invited to join us this weekend at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg. We're meeting in person as well as online, and you can find out more on our website. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for tuning in to Study the Minor Prophets. And we hope you'll join us again right here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know